because of Bethlehem, how Christmas makes all the difference in our lives. So would you pray with me before we start? Father, thank you for this night. Father, we praise you that we get to set aside time to come and learn from your word. Lord, we thank you for this place, for crossings, Lord, for uh, the beacon of light it is in our community. Lord, I thank you for the way it's impacted us. Father, as we come to your word tonight, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see it and uh, our ears to hear it. Lord, even in a fresh way. Father, help us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Lord, help us this Christmas season to grow, not just in excitement, but in obedience. Lord, bring us the joy that comes in knowing you. Lord, we lift up this time in Jesus' name. Amen. What's that moment for you where you know it's Christmas? Is there a song that you hear or a tradition that you have? Is there a place that you go or something that you see that makes you think it's now Christmas? For me, it's going to the mall. There's something about being in the mall when it's decorated well, which usually for me is on Christmas Eve. And I'm doing my shopping, and I go in, and I see all the garland everywhere and the lights. I think, it's Christmas tomorrow. (laughs) Here, it will feel like Christmas the day before Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve Eve. But what is it for you that makes you feel like Christmas is really here? One of the things I've always loved about Christmas is our Christmas traditions as a family. Most of them involve food. We have specific foods for specific times and specific places that have been handed down generation after generation after generation. That's what we do in our family. We have traditional meals and food and family time. But one tradition for me, personally, has been The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Anybody love that book? I try to read that book around Christmas sometime every year. Now, it's a children's book, so it's not hard to read, but I love to read that book because that book makes me feel like it's Christmas. One of the lines I really love in that book that I want us to focus on tonight is C.S. Lewis says that in Narnia, before Aslan came, it was a land where it was always winter, but never Christmas. Always winter, but never Christmas. That's what the world was like. And tonight, I want to talk about a world before Christ where it was always winter and never Christmas. See, one of the things that we forget about Christmas is Christmas is not just the coming of Jesus. It's not just about Jesus' birth. One of the things we're trying to do in this series is say, actually, Christmas is this giant, cosmic, all-encompassing event. The fact that our God came down to the earth in the form of a human being changes everything. Christmas is so much more than just the birth of Christ. Just like that saying, Christmas is something that turned the tide on winter forever. So in order to do that, we're going to look at a text that's not really a Christmas text. It's Psalm 98. So if you've got a Bible or you want to look at that sheet on your table, we're going to be in Psalm 98. It's going to take me a little bit to get there. But that's where we're going to camp out tonight. We're going to have to put on what I call spiritual trifocals tonight. Anybody in here wear trifocals? 
I mean, bifocals weren't enough. But now we have trifocals. I love the Brian Regan bit where he's like, do you really need to look at three places at once? He's like, you see, there's a bug on my nose. There's a book. There's Alpha Centauri. Do we need that? We do. What we're going to do tonight, though, is put on spiritual trifocals. We want to look at three things at once. First, we want to look up close in the text. We want to see what's right in front of us in the text in the first century when Jesus came to the earth. Secondly, we're going to look up a little bit, and we want to look at our surroundings here in 2016 in our lives, having accepted Christ, having looked at Christ from afar, whatever situation you're in. The second level we want to look at is our immediate surroundings. And then third, we want to look up again, and we want to see the universe as God describes it in total. So you're going to need spirit. It starts in Bethlehem. But I want to start three miles southeast of Bethlehem at a place called the Herodium. King Herod is a character we all know from the Christmas story, right? He's not a good guy. And when you go to Israel, one of the things you become immediately aware of is that Herod may have been a bad guy, but he was a great builder. There are things all over the Holy Lands that Herod built. A lot of things, we don't know exactly how he built them. There are stones so massive in the temple that he built that even modern engineers have trouble thinking how with those tools at that time, with, with the resources that they had, did they get those 100 feet off the ground? Herod was an impressive builder. And of all the things that he built, he picked a spot three miles southeast of of Bethlehem to build a military getaway called, humbly, the Herodium. The goal of this place was to make sure that if he needed to flee away from Jerusalem or if he needed to get away from an attacker, he would have a place that was totally self-sustaining and impregnable. This thing rises 2,500 feet off the plain. It is the highest peak in the Judean desert, and it is mostly man-made. What he did was he took this little mountain, and he, and, he, and he dug down inside of it, and he put all kinds of rooms and concrete and everything, and he built up another 200 feet on the top of it. It's shaped like a circle, and you can still see it today, extending up from Bethlehem. You can see it up on the hill, and it still would be a pretty great place to live. Herod built things with style. He had swimming pools. He had warm water swimming pools. He had cool water swimming pools. At one of his places over on the Mediterranean, he had hydraulic concrete gates for his harbor. This guy knew how to build. He had a royal palace in Jerusalem. He had the Herodium in Bethlehem. He had a military palace at Masada. This guy wanted everyone to know that not only was he the king of the Jews, he was the ruler of the elements. One of the things Herod wanted to make sure that everybody knew was that he was in control of everything. Not just humanity, but also forces of nature. The Herodian, like I said, was built to commemorate a military victory. 
It was a monument reminding everybody in the surrounding areas that Herod's might was greater than his enemies. Everyone in the area was living in the shadow of Herod. For the Jews who hated Herod, this was a world of all winter and no Christmas. And it's in the shadow of the Herodian, it's in the shadow of the power of Herod that a baby is born. Do you remember what Herod tried to do when Jesus was a baby? Oftentimes in the Christmas story, one of the first things that we hear is that Herod decided to kill all the babies. After Jesus had been born and after he had learned what had happened, he decided to put an end to any heir to his throne. But Jesus escaped. An angel came to his parents and they said, get up, go to Egypt, flee away. And they came back when Herod had died. God was providing them, but not in an overt way, in a subversive way. Because it would have been easy for God to come in and strike Herod dead. It would have been easy for him to send a king down with a beam of light and crush the Herodian and proclaim that he was going to be king over everything, but that's not the way God did it. He sent his son as a baby, under the power, the iron fist of another ruler. And that's what changed everything. That's the situation in the text. Let's look up a little bit to our own lives. When we begin to look at our world, Christmas really is about excitement. In fact, it's gotten kind of trendy lately to read articles or to see studies where Christmas is a manufactured holiday. Maybe you guys remember that Coke really reinvented all the Christmas advertising and all the Christmas ornamentation we see so that they could sell more Coke. If there's anything that steals away the meaning of Christmas, that might be it. We live in a fabricated, advertising-driven Christmas season. In fact, it's gotten so bad that it's become a cliche to say we need to remember the reason for the season. Why do we even have to remind each other of that? Because in our world, Christmas is so distantly related to the coming of Christ that it's actually easy to forget what we're actually celebrating. Like I mentioned earlier, and a theme that we're going to return to over and over is singing has a huge presence at Christmas. I mean, think about this with me for a minute. What other holiday has its own genre of music? Can you imagine if 104.1 played St. Patrick's Day music for a month? Or there are a few Halloween songs, but nobody has a favorite Mariah Carey Halloween song. Can you imagine if another holiday commanded the musical attention that Christmas did? I'll do it one better. Can you imagine another time of year when you and your friends and family could show up at a perfect stranger's door singing and they wouldn't call the police? I mean, how, how is this okay? You know what we want to do tonight? Doorbell ditch. Except we won't be gone. We'll be there singing Christmas songs. Christmas is unique. And part of the uniqueness is song. What if I told you, though, that the most popular Christmas song of all time is not really a Christmas song? 
What have I told you? Not, not in the sense that we usually think of it. The most popular Christmas song in the English language isn't really about Christmas. It's about something more than Christmas. The song, Joy to the World, is the most famous, most printed, most popular Christmas song in the English language. It was written by Isaac Watts and published in 1719. It's been around for a while. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with Isaac Watts, but we still sing a lot of his other songs today. He wrote over 750 hymns in his lifetime. He's known as the father of English hymns. Maybe you you remember the song, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, or Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed. When I survey the wondrous cross, but most famously, joy to the world. Now, there's something fascinating that Isaac Watts did to write hymns. He was a Bible-centered hymn writer. What he did was, at certain phases in his life, he went to the book of Psalms, and he decided he was just going to write a hymn from every psalm. And so over the course of his life, he wrote hymns on almost every psalm that we have. And when he got to Psalm 98, he wrote, Joy to the World. This is just Isaac Watts' devotional reflection on Psalm 98. He has pretty different devotions than I do, probably pretty different devotions than you do, But for him, this was just a personal, interactive moment with the Lord, writing these hymns. I want to read to you the lyrics of Joy to the World. And then we're going to see how this relates to Psalm 98. And especially as we're talking about a cosmic Christmas, I think you're going to hear some things in this this song that don't really have to do with the coming of Christ, but have everything to do with Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders, wonders of his love. How many of you guys, as I was reading that, wanted to do the uh, echo part on those repeats? Anybody? I almost had to stop myself. There's always that guy in your caroling group that wants to do that. In this hymn... We hear Christ coming in majesty. We hear kingdom language. In fact, a lot of this hymn sounds more like the second coming than it does 
the first coming. But what's interesting, and I put this on your note page, is we never, ever sing the third verse. Never. Curses the ground. He says, thorns are going to come up. You're going to work by the sweat of your brow. Pain in childbirth is going to increase. You guys are going to have relational strife. And all the days of your life will now be difficult. God curses the ground. But what does this hymn say that Jesus has come to do? He has come to release the curse. He has come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. This is a bigger picture of Christmas. This is not just shepherds and wise men and a star and a stable and no room in the inn. This is cosmic. This is something that God has been doing from the time that he created humanity until the time when he's going to bring humans to be with him forever. Christmas is the focal point where God is going to undo what sin has done in the world. This is just a glimpse of how big Christmas is. There's something going on in this hymn that we want to be part of. In fact, this is one of the more joyful songs we can sing. In fact, the whole thing is about joy. Heaven and nature are singing. We are singing. Christ is coming to the earth. We get to be with him. He's undoing the curse. This is really the meaning of Christmas. But it's a cosmic picture of Christmas. Let's turn now to Psalm 98. If you have a Bible open, I'm going to start at the beginning, and and there's the first few verses on your note sheet. Follow me in verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praise with the Lord with the lyre. With the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy because the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. I want to change it up for a minute. I want to ask you to do something at uh, your tables in a group. So you guys have the third verse of Joy to the World, and you probably know the rest of the verses. I want to take you just five minutes at your table, and I want you to compare Psalm 98 and Joy to the World. What are the things that they're both saying? What would you say is the heart of both of these things? And what we're going to do after that is talk about that's really the heart of Christmas. So take a couple minutes, talk at your tables. What are the themes that pop out to you in Joy to the World and in Psalm 98. And we're going to talk about how that's the true meaning of Christmas.
so you're probably, probably thinking of it right about now, I don't, I don't know if I buy this. This doesn't have anything to do with Christmas. What both of these, and I told you they're related, what Psalm 98 and Joy to the World are both expressing is there's a new ruler in the universe. There's a new king. And this king wants to bring righteousness and justice and joy and peace. So the question for us is, if, if that's what Christmas is all about, right? If, if that's what God is doing in history, how did he do it? How did he do it? This is where we get to Christmas. One of the most amazing things about Christmas is... God didn't do it the way that we probably would have done it. There was a really interesting book that I was reading a couple of years ago, and it's about rewriting some Bible stories. Not a good idea. But I found this one illustration so memorable on this point. We, we would do things very differently. The story goes like this. There was a little boy, and he was in the first grade, and they were going to do a Christmas play. And he tried out for the part, and he didn't get Joseph, and he didn't get the angel, and he didn't get the wise men. He got the innkeeper. The innkeeper only had one line, no room. But he was excited about it. So he went home, and he talked to his parents, and he told them that he was going to get to be the innkeeper, and they practiced his line time and time and time again. They practiced it. They said the line that came before it. They acted it out. And he said, no room. So the night comes for the play. And everybody's excited. Video camera charged. Grandparents there. It was going to be a family event. And so they get there and they're watching the play. And Mary and Joseph come along on the donkey. And they show up at the innkeeper's place. And they say, do you have a room for us? And there he is. He says, no room. And they're like, Good job. And they say, are you sure? No room. He says, my wife's about to have a baby. No room. Mary and Joseph, as they've been scripted to do, turn around and begin to walk away. And he just couldn't handle it anymore. <laughs> and he said, stop. You can have my room. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? If we were writing the story... It would probably go something like that. If a first grader was writing the story, it would go something like that. But that's not what God did. And all through the Christmas story, there's instances like that. We say, what, what are you doing? Why did you do it this way? One of the things that we can't escape in Psalm 98 is that God has a very determined purpose in the world. If we were to summarize Psalm 98 to God's purpose through Christ in the world, it would be to work salvation for his people. This comes up all through Psalm 98. In fact, this is a very unique psalm. 
There's a lot more here than meets the eye, and part of it is the setting that the author uses to get us into the text. One of the things that you need to know about Hebrew poetry is that it's very experiential. It's not just words on a page to be postulated about. It's actually experiential. They want to draw you into the text so that you too are experiencing what the author is experiencing. The way we see this in this psalm is in verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Then verse 8, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy. What's happening in this psalm is that the earth is becoming an orchestra, praising the Lord. The performance of this psalm is rhythmic. If we were to read it in Hebrew, we wouldn't understand it, but we would be able to ascertain that there is a rhythmic structure. It's almost like a symphony beginning to play. And the musicians are not people. They are hills and oceans. The thunder is roaring for the majesty of the Lord. is waiting and groaning for God to work salvation. And it says, He has remembered His steadfast love. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of the Lord. With His right hand and His holy arm, He has made salvation for His people. Sometimes I love in the Psalms to go and read what Eugene Peterson wrote in the message. His paraphrase of the Psalms is so Good. To lay beside a translation, I'm using the ESV, to lay aside a translation like this, he says, God rolled up his sleeves and made things right. God is going to straighten out the whole world. He'll put it right and everyone in it. God is restoring the world through the work of his son. He is decisively entering into a relationship with his people through Christ. This is a Christmas psalm. What is God going to do at Christmas? He's going to bring salvation for his people. This big cosmic picture of Christmas is also in the traditional Christmas story. If you've got a Bible, turn over to Luke chapter 1. This is going to start to sound a little bit more familiar. In Luke chapter 1, we see the visit from Mary to her cousin Elizabeth. And when she goes there, John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin, who is going to be Mary's nephew, leaps in the womb when Mary comes with Jesus. And then Mary sings to Elizabeth. If you look at starting in verse 46, Mary says what's called the Magnificat. It is a song that she sings to Elizabeth, and it's reminiscent of all kinds of passages from the Old Testament. In fact, this is just a scrapbook of the verses that Mary knew and treasured from the Old Testament. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my salvation. She is singing for what God has done for her. But 
nestled in this story, there's a line I don't want us to miss. As they're talking and as they're going back and forth and Mary sings this song, look at verse 42. When Mary shows up and the baby leaps in her womb, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaims, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. This seems fairly pedestrian when you think about the story. But like Mary's song later, this also is a quote from the Old Testament. In fact, Elizabeth says to Mary, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. This line has been said one time before in the Bible. It's in Judges chapter 5. In Judges, we meet a character named Jael. And Jael is an unlikely hero. In fact, she, we're not 100% sure why she's in this story. But what's happening is the Israelites are in one of their conflicts that they tend to have. And they have a judge who is raised up to defend them. But things don't really go as planned. In fact, they are encamped against the Canaanites. And Sisera is the general of the Canaanite army. And after the battle, he flees and comes to the tent of Jael. I want to read you what J.L. does. This is a resourceful, this is a very resourceful woman. Later, as they're recounting the story, they tell us that the man comes up to J.L.'s tent and asks if he can have shelter. J.L. is, is shrewd, and she says, uh, uh, turn aside, my Lord, and come into my tent. And he, and he says to her, but if I do this, You need to stand at the gate of the tent to make sure that no enemies come. And she says, yes, of course I will. It says in verse 21 of chapter 4 of Judges. Then Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And she went swiftly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. And he died. J.L., by doing this to the general of a foreign army, almost unbeknownst to her, saved all of Israel. Deborah, the judge at the time, comes by and she, you probably guessed it, sings to J.L. And in the middle of her song, she says, Zebulun is a people... Gilead is a people, the kings came and fought from heaven the stars and fought. But you, J.L., blessed are you among women. Why? Why blessed are you, J.L., among women? Because J.L. saved her people from a tyrant. Because J.L., by crushing the head of the enemy, made the people of God free and at peace again. You probably can see the connection here with Mary. When Elizabeth shows up and says, blessed are you among women, what she's saying is, you are a woman like Jael. There's courage in the story of Mary. Through you, not just the people of Israel, but every person on the face of the earth will be freed from a tyrant. But not just an earthly tyrant. 
Do you remember what God said to Adam and Eve after he gave the curse in the garden? The offspring of the woman will crush the enemy's head. He will crush the enemy's head. And just as J.L. crushed a temporary human enemy, so Jesus would come and crush the head of the ultimate enemy. There's something cosmic going on here. God is bringing salvation. The the Gospel Transformation Bible puts it this way. God has launched a great international campaign of redemption. As others see our enthusiasm, energy, and sense of expectation, they will be attracted to God's reality. As God launches out on this great campaign of redemption through Christ, as God crushes the head of the enemy, whether we look in the text or in our life or in the universe, we see God's plan of salvation and how we get to be a part of it. So let's tie this together. How does Christmas make all the difference for us? There are three ways. Three ways that Christmas makes all the difference for us. Number one, because of Christmas... We get to tell the good news of Christmas to a world that only knows winter. Because of what Jesus did, we get to tell the good news of Christmas to a world that only knows winter. Have you noticed that our world is haunted by the presence of God? Even in Oklahoma, of all places, the buckle of the Bible belt, as Our culture has begun to depart from the Christian faith, even though there are many who no longer hold to their beliefs of Christianity, even though they don't go to church. Have you noticed that there's a haunting, that God is in the background? One of my favorite opening lines of any book I've ever read is a book called Nothing to be Frightened of. It's a memoir by Julian Barnes. It was the 2008 New York Times Book of the Year. And here's the opening line. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I wonder how many people we know feel that way. That's really the sense that C.S. Lewis captured There's a lot of people who are looking around and wondering, there's got to be something more than just winter. There's got to be something more than just the cold, chilling reality of existence. I don't believe in God, but I miss Him. How many people just need us to remind them that there's something more than what they're doing now? How many people need to be told that there's somebody who loves them more than just the people that they know? I remember a couple of, uh, probably about a year ago, I was sharing the gospel on a college campus. That's one of the things I do here is college ministry. And I was talking to a guy, and I was sharing the gospel with him, and we started talking through things, and I could tell immediately that this guy was one of those guys that had an argument for everything. 
And as we started to talk, he talked about, you know, the reliability of the Bible. There, there's no way you can believe that book. And he's talking about, he's like, well, you know, can we really know if there is a God? And, and, if, and if we did, would he really love us? And so at the end of this thing, I finally was like, you know what? The bottom line is this. Even before you love God, God is loving you. Even if you never put your trust in him and you spend eternity away from him, that doesn't change the fact that God sent his son to die on a cross for your sins if you put your trust in him. And I remember, this is one of my favorite times I've ever talked to a student about their faith because I remember him saying to me, I've never heard the gospel when somebody told me that what motivated God was love. He's like, I've heard all the gospel presentations about how terrible I am. I've heard all the presentations about how there's a penalty that needs to be paid. He's like, but I've never heard somebody say that the reason God did this is because he loved me. How many people don't believe in God, but they miss him? How many people look around and wonder if there's something more? Because of Christmas, we have the opportunity to tell people about Christmas who have only experienced winter. Number two, how does is, how is Christmas make all the difference for us? Number two, we worship the God who came for us. There's this theme that you might have been noticing through the Bible. There's a lot of singing in the Bible. A lot of singing in the Bible. And one of the reasons for that is because the Bible is clear that the enemy will be conquered because of worship. In fact, the end goal of all of history, if we look at where everything is headed, it's that God will end up getting the glory, being worshipped by his people. Have you ever noticed in the Christmas story, everybody that comes into contact with Jesus worships him. The shepherds come, they're terrified, they fall down and worship him. The wise men come and they bow down and they give gifts and they worship him. The angels are singing and worshiping Christ. Everybody in the Christmas story is worshiping. In the same way, if you notice at the end of the Bible, there's a lot of singing. In Revelation chapter 5, in fact, Revelation contains more songs than the rest of the New Testament. In Revelation chapter 5, we get this picture into heaven. And what we see in chapters 4 and chapters 5 is that everybody up in heaven is praising God. They're worshiping him. In chapter 5, it says that the elders sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This kind of thing happens over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. From the beginning when Adam sees Eve and he sings to the Psalms that were the songbook of the church, to the Magnificat, to the end of Revelation, God is getting glory through worship from his people. Our response in Christmas is to worship God. Maybe that's why there's so much singing 
at Christmas. Because we are practicing and mirroring what the proper response is to what God has done for us. Yesterday, we as a staff were sitting in a meeting and Larry Harrison, who's next door to us right now, was sharing our Devo. And one of the things he said just so stuck with me for this Christmas season. He says, the greatest truth in the universe can be contained in two little words. He came. That was mind-blowing to me. The greatest truth in all the universe, he said, greater than philosophy, greater than anything, never be the same again. I think about the wise men. Remember what happened to the wise men? They come and they track down Jesus and they stop on the way at Herod's place. Remember Herod that we talked about at the beginning, the ruler of all the known world for the Jews and for the Israelites, the one who was not just taming them but nature, the king? They leave Herod's place and they go and worship Jesus. And then there's this little aside. It says, after they left there, there was an angel that came and told them and They went back another way. The wise men didn't go back the same way that they came. They didn't go back to the earthly ruler, Herod, but instead now they were under the dominion of the heavenly ruler, Jesus. For those of us who have put our trust in Christ, we will never, ever be the same. Because like Psalm 98 says, like joy to the world says, like the Bible testifies to you, if you are in Christ, nothing will ever be the same. Instead of living in a world where we are being passed around from tyrant to tyrant, instead of living in a world where we're looking for peace and shouting peace where there is no peace, instead we have a king who has come to bring peace. In the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis summarizes what Aslan did. And I think this is a pretty good summary of what we've been talking about. At the end of the book, he says this, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets It's death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. That's the cosmic Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we are sensitive in this season of what a privilege it is to worship you. Lord, we thank you that you sent your son for us. Lord, we thank you that we have this season to remember that. Lord, we thank you for all the ways that we get to celebrate. But most importantly, Lord, we thank you that we get to come to a place like this, that we get to gather with other believers, and we get to sing to you. We get to worship you. And Lord, I pray as we sing this year, maybe our appreciation of Christ, maybe our scope would be a little bit bigger this year. Because we see how grand. Your plan is through Christ. Lord, I pray for those of of the people in here that are walking with you and those who are maybe just checking out the whole Christ thing. Lord, I pray that all of us would see clearly your plan to bring salvation through Christ. 
Father, we give you all the glory for that. We give you all the praise and honor. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.